I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership funk and soul keyboardist and songwriter Mos Davis, an original member of The Counts and a longtime feature player with Hamilton Bohannon. He also released a solo album in 1978, and he continues to play today. Mose, thank you for joining me. How are you? I am fine. Excited to be here on broadcast. Well, so good to have you, and uh, I assume you're in your home today. Where Whereabouts in the country is that? It's in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you from there originally? or I'm uh, born in Birmingham, Alabama, moved to Detroit. Uh, uh, all of my apprentice days in music was in Detroit uh, during uh, the Motown era and, and uh, the jazz explosion era. So I got a mixture of both. Uh-huh. Well, what a what a, a influential place to grow up musically speaking. I mean, that's the uh, center of it all, right there. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. What uh, what 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 uh, what inspired you to uh, you know pick up the keyboards and how'd you get into it? Well, uh, my mother and father both played, so uh, I got a love for music from just listening and learning from watching them play so uh when they get up from the piano we had a, a, a upright piano in the house when they get up i'd get up there and, and play and and make some sense out of it and so they saw i had a little talent and uh at around uh i'd say eight they started me with piano lessons so what extent did you have formal training versus just kind of picking up stuff on your own um, I would say the formal training started around um, about nine years old because they saw I had some talent. I could, I had a good ear. You know, if they played something, I could pick it up. So they said, oh, yeah, this, and everybody, uh, my whole family would say, he's good. He needs training and blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, I started training then around nine years old. I had a, um, uh, a little lady teacher that everybody always gives the same story. The little old lady with the ruler that taps your hand. I had that. And I advanced from that to uh, the Detroit Conservatory of Music. And uh, I stayed there for, uh, I'd say, about four years. And uh, my instructor told my mom that he's good. I can't teach him anymore because he knows where he wants to go and it's not where I want to teach him. And where I wanted to go was more jazz and funk instead of the uh, classical uh, direction. Mm -hmm. So knowing that, who are some of your top influences musically? Okay. Uh, uh, my main influence in blues was Jimmy Reed in Howlin' Wolf. Uh, the influence in jazz 
was Jimmy Smith, the organ player. And uh, that's a whole, we can go into that in a minute. And then on piano, well, that's, no, on piano, Ahmad Jamal, definitely Ahmad Jamal, you know. And, um, and of course, uh, you had Motown going on, and so I was hearing that. And the thing I picked up from Motown was uh, the energy of the music, the feel of the music. And so what happened, I wanted to just converge on all of those genres and get a sound of my own. And what was, uh, if you can recall, an early show you saw, a performer you saw at a young age that really just, you were like, wow. Um, that's interesting. Uh, really, uh, when I was playing, uh, I, you know, I was always playing the phonograph uh, that we had in the house. Uh, I was always playing that. I get out of school and then I go right down and start listening to the phonograph. So uh, I heard Jimmy Smith playing. And uh, I asked my mom, I said, mom, what is, what is that? She said, it's an organ. And I said, yeah, but what's that, that low thing down there? She said, that's an organ, you know? And so that influenced me into playing bass, bass lines with the organ, which I used with the counts. And that gave us that sound because we didn't use the bass player. Um, the first live performer I, I saw that got me was uh, Richard Groove Holmes, the organ player. You know, he was so good with that bass line. I was just blown out, just blown away, blown away. Jimmy Reed, I saw also, but, uh, you know, people, for some reason, they didn't respect blues players in Detroit during the 60s and 70s. So the sound wasn't good and blah, 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 you know, but I loved it. So were you a teenager at that point? Yes, I was. Mm-hmm. 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 But uh, yeah, young, I didn't, when I was a youngster, I didn't really get to see much of anybody, you know. So I just I developed my sound and went from there. When I was a teenager, that's when I first started playing out live around, I'd say around 17, what have you, playing piano, because I couldn't afford an organ at that time. What was your first... Uh professional so to speak experience whether it was on stage or in a studio before the counts um i'd say i was about uh 17 years old and i would practice um in detroit and the door was open and a guy came up he heard me because it was a, a bus stop right by my house he came up he says hey would you like to do a gig you know and, and i said yeah so i thought i was on my way to stardom you know, I said, oh, I made it. So uh, I went and uh, with him and we played a gig and I was playing a out of tune piano. And uh, but uh, it just the the feeling of it, uh, the feeling of playing for people. It was just tremendous. I was hooked right after that. Mm-hmm. I might be ten dollars for the gig, but it didn't matter. So did you think you were going to make a, a career and living out of it at that point or were you still kind of unsure? Always thought that. Uh, however, I I, uh, I was going to play for the Detroit Tigers. That was my wish. You know, I knew I was going to be a professional baseball player. And uh, that was my dream. I was a pretty good athlete. And so um, I tried out for my high school team and uh, I was a great hitter. So I thought and, uh, the, the uh, so I went up to bat for the trial and saw a curveball come at me. I said, oh, well, I don't know if I can do this. 
<laughs> I didn't make the team either. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, let me look over at music a little more seriously here. Yeah. Was that like around the uh, era of like Harmon Killebrew and. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Al yeah. King, yeah. Rocky, Vito, Norm, Cash, Denny McClain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> had some great players. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jim Northrup. We can go on now if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I love sports. Yeah. <clears throat> That's my loves too. Music and sports. You can't beat them. Yes. Yes. And they kind of, they're similar too. They're both performers. Uh, you execute. Uh, it's, it's very similar. Mm -hmm. And competitive. And yeah. Very, very competitive. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, most on your credits, you know, it shows uh, 1973 uh, for being both uh, Bohannon and the Counts. So, which came first? How did that work out? Definitely the Counts. Uh, I was in high school. Um, uh, we can go back. Uh, we can go back to um, elementary school. Even I had two friends in Detroit. We were just best friends, and uh, we loved the Majamal. We loved the Majamal, and. Um, uh, one friend played the guitar. The other guy, uh, he wanted to be a drummer. So we said, "Yeah, man, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna call ourselves the Counts." But it wasn't really as a group. It was just us three individuals being cool guys that dressed well, treated the ladies nice, and was just just three respectable guys. So as time went on, you know, one guy passed. He had, you know, very young, and and the other guy went out of sight. But I said, I'm going to keep this going. I'm When I get a group, I'm going to name that group The Counts. Well, that's how the, the name The Counts came about. And uh, I met uh, uh, Keith Mangrum. He's a percussion player uh, in Shelton Hill. He played sax. I met them when I went to high school. And so The the Counts was formed right there. And uh, we did we did some amateur things, and uh, Keith and I we did the organ and uh, conga drum thing, and we won a, a, a music uh, what would you call it uh, talent show? Yeah, a talent show where you you put something on tape and you submitted it to the radio station. And uh, so we uh, recorded something, submitted it to the radio station, and. Uh, we went all the way to number two and number one was Carolyn Crawford. Um, and Carolyn Crawford was the singer on Bo Hannon's come on and do it. Let's start to dance. But this was way before that, you know, so Carolyn Crawford was number one. We were number two at the time. And uh, that's basically how the count started to got our name. And we expanded the group from that. Uh, we added a couple of uh, saxophone players, uh, Andrew Gibson came aboard and we had we had everything. We had the uh, sax players. We had the drummer. We had uh, uh, percussionists. We were lacking a guitar, though. We we had a hard time finding a guitar player. We drilled a couple of them, maybe three, four five. We couldn't find one. So uh, Andrew, our drummer, needed some drums. And uh, so we went to uh, Grinnell's music store in Detroit. It was a popular music store. And we went in there and, and my sister, uh, she signed for Andrew, the drummer, to get a set of drums. So we were uh, jamming 
with the with the uh, with the drums that Andrew was going to buy. And this guy comes up and uh, he says, hey, man, can I sit in with you guys? And uh, he sat in with us. And that was Leroy Emanuel. So once we got Leroy, it was complete. And then we started working and getting very popular and just one thing led to another. And uh, we got a contract to uh, record Jan Jan. And there it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Leroy's been on the show. Uh, yeah, I heard. It. I heard. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, I enjoyed him a lot because he's had a very interesting career, also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, you were on that first album. Uh, What's up front that counts? Very much so. Okay, because I was just looking at your your credits on Discogs, and for whatever reason, they started with Love Sign. But um, no, 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 yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, the first thing we did was Jan Jan. Um, after Jan Jan, Jan Jan was very successful in the up where we were in the Detroit area. Then following that, we had Get Down People, which was huge. That was, I, I would say, that was our biggest record. Um, Get Down People was like number two or three in Jet Magazine. It it uh, it hit the charts uh, for uh, R and B uh, and Billboard much higher than Jan Jan. It was a bigger record. It was a vocal thing, you know. We wasn't saying much, but you know, it's still vocal. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about the chemistry of the counts, you know, and and also sort of um, how that chemistry created that sound? Okay, well, okay. Now we go back to the fact that um, when the counts came out, there were no self-contained units. First of all. That, uh, like, for instance, now we were in Detroit, Motown, uh, Smokey and um, uh, Barrett Strong and uh, 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 who's the creator of Motown? Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy. They handle everything. You know, they wrote the music. They they wrote the lyrics. They did everything. Uh, the counts. We wrote our own lyrics. We made our own music. And, and the thing that separated us from everybody else, everybody else had a bass player. We didn't have a bass player. I played bass on the organ pedals. So that gave us that sound. That gave us that sound that if you listen to us and you listen, you'll hear there's no bass player. That's the organ playing the bottom. So that distinguished us from everybody. So we were the, the first contained self-contained group. And I'll, I'll argue that with anybody. We were the first self-contained group to get on to be charted on on uh r&b charts and what have you you might have had them on jazz jazz records but nobody was doing funk but us with no bass player that no bass player thing with that smooth bottom led to the synthesizer playing bass i can expound on that uh we were playing at a club in detroit bohannon came in i didn't know bohannon at this time but he came in to hear us. He knew Leroy. So he came in to hear us. And Stevie was with him. Stevie Wonder was with him. Uh, Stevie was in that early part of his career where he was doing some things. Motown was producing it and whatever. He wasn't really doing his thing yet. So Stevie sat in with us. And uh, Stevie, we did Here I Am Baby. And so when we finished Here I Am Baby, Steve was playing drums. He sat there for a minute. I'll never forget this. He sat there and he said, there's no, there's no bass player up here. And Leroy said, no, the organ's playing bass. He said, oh, he thought for a while. He came back again, sat in. Next thing we know, he came out with superstition. 
he was playing bass on the synth. I take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> I take credit for that. And then we went out with uh, we uh, we had then we had put out what's up front and counts after that, and that was successful and all. So we toured with uh, the Funkadelics and uh, 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 what's his name, Bernie Bernie Orell. Yeah. yeah, Bernie heard us, and Bernie said the same thing. He said, "You're not using the bass." I said, "No, I'm playing with the organ." So then Bernie came out with uh, flashlight. I take semi credit for that. <laughs> but you know people don't know that I, I tell the story sometimes and people look at me like yeah right so I, I don't tell it much <laughs> what 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 was your first uh was that your first thought when you heard flashlight for the first time yeah of course i yeah. said oh okay <laughs> <laughs> you got bootsy over there but you playing bass yourself okay <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's definitely innovative in the early 70s, then the later 70s into the 80s, you know, a lot of funk bands started doing that. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but we're the first, you know, if you if you check back, um, you know, check back to Jan Jan at the year, I think Jan Jan came out around uh, 66, but if you go back and look at 66, nobody was, everybody used the bass player, we were the first. Uh, when Get Down People, Get Down People, I think, was 1970. Uh, during that time, Sly came out, so everybody was trying to do the Larry Graham thing on the bottom. You know, so we definitely, I, I, that distinguished our sound. What, was it out, was of necessity or uh, that you were trying to sound different by doing that? Um, no, we were just doing our thing, which goes back to you were asking me who I listened to. So I listened to Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith played bass. You know, all those jazz guys played bass themselves. So I got that from them. But then the music that we were playing wasn't jazz. We were playing funk. So I just played funk and uh, used the bass pedals. Because I really couldn't find a bass player that would sound like we wanted him to sound. Because of the way we wrote stuff at that time. I will say, though, that you definitely, to my ears, had some jazz and rock influence in what you were doing. I listened to Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, Groove Holmes, all, uh, Don Patterson, all those guys. I listened, and I can emulate all of them. Leroy listened to Wes Montgomery, uh, Grant Green, uh, all the, the top guitar players. Uh, Demo, the saxophone man, he listened to Lou Donaldson, uh, John Coltrane. And so we all had this jazz. We were jazz heads, but we wanted to record funk because we figured that's where the money was. And, and you know, we listened to Motown uh, and uh, all of that. So Booker T and all those guys. So that's where we wanted to be. So, but but we had the jazz chops, so that gave us a sound also, because the, the the funk guys couldn't really compete with us when it came down to just soloing and what have you, because that's what we did. Right. So you mentioned doing uh, uh, concert bills with Funkadelic at one point. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what 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 were they like? What 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 was your guys' impression of of Funkadelic at that point? Oh, we we uh, we loved them. We um we were on the Westbound label together. So uh before we went out with them, it was somewhat like a competition thing. But um 
after going out with him, we got to really know him. And I was, I got to be great friends with Bootsy. That was my man. And we just wake up uh, shooting the breeze and, and playing the dozens with each other. And uh, it, it was a great experience for us. And, uh, uh, you know, we were like opening up for them. So we got to travel uh, on the West Coast. And, uh, and that's when we found out the popularity that we had. We had no idea. Mm-hmm. Westbound between you, you guys, and Funkadelic and Ohio players, and I mean, man, uh, the Ohio players on there, uh, the Detroit Emeralds, uh, Bobby Franklin Insanity Band, the Funkadelic, and us. Yeah, I like that lineup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and man, what's up front that counts? That's one of my favorites, man. What an epic jam that is. Uh-huh. Do, you um, remember, do you remember first recording that, you know? And yep. Um, um we were we were playing this all night game. And so uh, you know, we 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 knew we had to put an album together. And at this time, uh, I personally I was in the like three dog night, uh, Santana. Um Leroy's uh, somewhat similar. So we wanted to do, uh, we noticed that uh, people were doing extended tunes. So we, we wanted to put together an extended tune with some solos and all of that. So uh, we rehearsed and, uh, you know, I put my ideas on it. Uh, Demo, Leroy, everybody uh, added ideas. And um, uh, that's basically it. We just wanted to do a tune that was different, but funky with some licks and what have you. And we came up with that. And also the uh the part now, you know, when it starts out, we got that thing whoop <laughs> that thing going. And they call that the boom box. Nobody was doing that before we did it. <laughs> so I'm back to that again. You know. But uh yeah, that's how we started it out. And uh we just wanted to kind of just space out and 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 do a nice tune. So that's how it came about. Yeah. And of course, at first, we didn't mention, but it was a fabulous count. And then just the counts. Yeah. When we first started, uh, uh, we had a manager, Fred McClure, and uh, he put that title on us. He said, well, you guys, we, we got to do something to just uh, to emphasize you guys. So he put fabulous on it. And so when Jan Jan came out and get down people, it was the fabulous counts. And uh, we had rabbit ears and and there was some some people, they might have been a little jealous or something. And they said, you know, some of these groups out here is calling themselves fabulous and calling themselves this and that and the other. And it's up to other people to to say whether you're great or not. And so our rabbit ears say, hey, let's just call ourselves the counts and prove ourselves with our music. So that's why we cut it down to the counts. Mm-hmm. Well, Fabulous Flames is the obvious one I think of immediately with that moniker, you know, Fabulous. Uh, yeah. Um, did you ever do any shows uh, with James Brown? No, uh, no. Um, personally, uh, let's see. Uh, Candy Staten. I did. I, I did. I went overseas with Candy Staten. And, um, um let's see who else uh uh oh uh mm, carl anderson carl anderson um uh jimmy ruffin david's brother uh 
I can go on and on, really. I was referring to the uh, concert tickets that you shared the bill with, not necessarily that you played with. Is that what you were talking about? Oh, oh no, I played with those people. Yeah. So, um, we shared the bill, of course, with uh, Funkadelics and Asley Brothers. Uh, we we toured the West Coast. Uh, our Graham Central Station was on that bill too. We get to we got to know them quite well. Um, uh, let's see, who else did we? Um, Jimmy Reed, we did a thing with Jimmy Reed. That's when I got to hear Jimmy Reed. Um, that must have been a thrill for you after being a fan. Oh, big thrill, big thrill. Uh, Ahmad Jamal, we did a show with Ahmad Jamal. That was a bigger thrill. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, Jimmy Smith. So um, quite a few, quite a few. Those those were the ones I can remember. So you, uh, got to, you got to meet your heroes pretty much. Uh-huh. You got to meet your heroes eventually at some point. Yeah, I, I met all of them. Uh, Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, uh, Ma Jamal, Groove Holmes, all of them pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's living the dream right there, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Lonnie Smith, the organ player, I know you, you've you heard of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I got to be great friends with him, and uh, he... He pretty much, he he bolstered my confidence in myself. You know, he was telling me some things he admired about my plan and how I took the jazz thing and did the stuff we we're talking about. And uh, that really meant a lot to me. And this happened later in life for me, maybe about uh, 10 years ago or less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking, oh, well, you know. And uh, I talked to Lonnie and, and that brightened up a lot of things for me. Oh, that's great. Great to hear. Um, Most the accounts, what was the core audience like at that time when you guys were uh, touring and so forth? Uh, Basically, uh, uh, we came out, the accounts came out, we were like uh, seniors in high school. And uh, so uh, the main audience was high school seniors, uh, uh, freshmen, uh, College, you know, because we played a lot of college campuses, and uh, they, uh, they, I think, helped uh, with our careers. They really got behind us and bought our records. Uh, we, Michigan, Michigan State, uh, Kalamazoo, uh, that, that college there, and just you know, all the colleges in the Midwest. And so, was it racially diverse? Also, the audience. Um. Not at first, uh, but then uh, we we did some shows in Canada, and uh, Canada had this uh, television show, and uh, we went on right after Jan Jan, and uh, uh, after they uh, broadcast a show that we did, then it got div- diverse. You know, we started playing a lot in uh, uh, Toronto, uh, Windsor, and and so forth, and uh, you know. A lot of Canadian things because Canada was right across the water. Mm. Detroit. We were still living in Detroit at that time. Were Were you involved with the Mister Penguin phenomenon at all? Yes, we were. Uh, that's <laughs> an interesting story. Um, uh, we had at the time uh, when Mister Penguin came out. We also we had why not start all over again 
which was with the counts, and that was like uh, number uh, number three on the charge. And so, um, some some kind of way, the, the the guy who was kind of producing us, Marlon McNichols, he had a, a deal with uh, Bell Records, and they, and they needed something, uh, kind of, and uh, so we went as uh, Lunar Funk, we call ourselves, but we were really the counts. It was Leroy, uh, myself, and Andrew the drummer. Andrew the drummer did the Mr. Penguin voice. And uh, so we recorded that. It was just a tune that we always played on our breaks as the counts. And uh, Leroy said, why don't we do that tune, that uh, break tune that we do and uh, put Andrew on there as Mr. Penguin. And so we did that. And, and that record beat us. It was number two and we were number three. So we had two records in the top 10 at the same time. And we used to hear people say, oh, they're better than you guys. And we couldn't say anything. <laughs> and they'd come up, oh, that organ player kills you. i say, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the no bass sound, too. Yeah. So then would you guys just uh, play it more as a featured song, though, on the count sets? Uh, no, we, it was just a, uh, just a little break tune. Just something, something we threw together, you know, when we're getting ready to take our break. Uh, somebody to introduce the band, and we'd be playing, doom, 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 and that was Mr. Penguin. And so yeah, we just took that and made a record out of it. But I was curious if after it became a hit, you know, if you guys featured it more prominently. Uh, we didn't do it then because oh. of contract uh, things. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So never people never really knew. Well, you guys knew, you know, and uh, it came out later on. But at I first, knew who Lunar Funk was. But if you look on the back of Get Down People, which was our, the Count's biggest record at the time, uh, on the back of the B side of Get Down People was Lunar Funk. <laughs> you got to read. Th- you got to read through the lines there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could have yeah. almost been like Parliament Funkadelic, you know. You could have been the Counts and Lunar Funk. Exactly, same thing. <laughs> same thing. Uh, were you were you guys like you know wondering why that got over like it did, and some of the other tracks you probably uh, thought were more important, uh, maybe didn't get as much exposure? Uh, well, I know why. Uh, because with Mister Penguin, uh, the popular dance at the time was the Penguin. So we put out, we made, we made sure that the beat was following that penguin beat, you know. So uh, the little lesson that we didn't learn was to use commerciality when you're putting out songs and you want to sell them. And that's what we did with Lunar Funk and boom, you know, whereas the counts, we cool, we want to do this, we want to do this. And, you know, we think in that way instead of trying to sell some records. With with, uh, Mr. Penguin, we were trying to sell some records. And went about it the right way. Mm-hmm. You, whatever's hot at the time, you jump on it and use that formula. That's something my friend Ray Parker always talked about. Use the formula, you know, like Ghostbusters and uh, what's that? Uh, the Rick James tune, like he did. You know, you use formulas. That's the key to getting a hit hit record. Yeah, well, Ray Parker definitely mastered that with radio for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, he came up. He was 
listening to us. Ray used to come and listen to us and what have you, you know. And he looked like Leroy, Leroy and Ray favorite, you know. And uh, that was a funny thing. And uh, Ray, <laughs> Ray, Ray told Leroy, he said, uh, "Man, I'm gonna grow up. I'm gonna be bigger than you." You know, Leroy said, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, uh, some Byron Mil uh, Miller played with the Counts, right? Yeah. Uh, when we moved to Atlanta, uh, uh, this this company down here signed us up and lured us away from Westbound. Um, to me, that was one of our mistakes. We should have stayed with Westbound. But anyway, they lured us down here. And uh, when we got here, they... You, we're talking about the count sound. Well, they said, well, first of all, you guys need a bass player. And so we had to get a bass player. And so that's that's how Burns stepped in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I know he was just a kid then probably, but if you're going to get a bass player, he's a pretty good one to get. Oh, he was definitely one to get. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't know. And, you, you know, I was pretty much in control of how the record sounded or how the music sounded. And I didn't quite know what to do with Byron because I'd never worked with a bass player before. You know, now, if I'd worked with him later on in life, it would have been great. But at that time, I didn't know how to quite work with Byron. But it, it worked out okay. But it could have been so much better, you know, if, if I had the experience in knowing how to work with a bass player. Mm -hmm. mm. What uh, would you say is the most unforgettable live experience you ever had with the counts hmm um well there's a lot of them uh, the main one when we uh we played when we toured with the funkadelics when we toured with the funkadelics and and went all over the uh the west coast um uh, one that one that's kind of interesting is when I went with uh, Candy Staten to uh, Europe. Um, everywhere we went, like uh, one instance, uh, Candy. Well, Candy had told the people who I'd been with and whatever. So I was. We were coming off the stage, and this beautiful woman, all of a sudden, she got on her knees and was kind of like worshiping. I say, "Who is she doing that to?" I turned around, there was nobody there. And she was doing it to me. And then she picks up the What's Up Front Counts album, the Jan Jan album, and wanted me to sign them. And that was happening everywhere in Europe. And so my biggest thrill was finding out we were known all over the world. I had no idea, you know, which gets into other things, you know. <laughs> Record companies not letting you know how big you really are, you know, and all that. You know, that, that's a whole other thing. What what year would you say that was? That was uh, about 80, 90, about 90, and going into 2020, actually. Oh, That's much, much, much later on then. Much, much later on. Mm -hmm. And that was with Candy Staten? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.